Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Eric Bowl, Director of Public Affairs, and joining us today is Spencer Tuma, our Director of National Legislative Programs, and B.J. Tanksley, our Director of State Legislative Programs. Welcome, guys. Thanks so much. We're glad to be back. Thanks for having us. It's been a little while since the three of us have been together, so uh, we have quite a few things to catch up on, but um, there's been a lot of developments on the uh, broadband front. We'll start there. Fortunately, some good news coming down the line over the last few months where there's been so much attention on it because of the stay-at-home orders and people needing to do school at home and uh, realizing that there is more of a need for broadband. So we've seen both on the state and federal level some action uh, related to improving broadband access. BJ, you've been uh, following this really closely on the state level. What have you seen that coming out of the, the state leg- the state legislature and out of Governor Parson's office? Yeah, uh, just prior to the 4th of July, we had a, a major day for broadband, to be honest with you. Uh, first started out at uh, Como Connect in, here in Tipton, Missouri, where Missouri Farm Bureau was a part of the presentation where the governor did the ceremonial bill signing for House Bill 1768. Uh, that was a bill by Representative Riggs and Senator Hegeman, uh, two of our biggest leaders on the broadband discussion in the Capitol. Um, that was some legislation that extended the broadband grant program. You know, we've talked a lot about that, um, helping to provide broadband into unserved and, uh, and underserved areas of the state. So we got that bill signed. And the other thing it did was one of our other priorities for this past session, which was allowing Department of Economic Development some of their uh, community improvement district programs to to facilitate broadband. Um, and so some major steps forwards in that. And actually, while we were there for the bill signing, I got a couple of like rumors and kind of, hey, you're probably going to want to pay attention to the governor's press conference this afternoon. Hey, make sure you're following this afternoon because the governor is doing those kind of biweekly mm-hmm. uh, COVID-related press conferences. And so we got kind of excited and we were hoping at that point um, that there was going to be an announcement related to some broadband funding to go to the grant program. Well, I will be honest with you, when that pro, when that uh, press conference kicked off and the number was about 10 times what we expected, I was really excited. Yeah. So we went in hoping for about $5 million, which was a number we had talked about earlier in the year. And when the announcement came out, it was nearly $50 million yeah. in CARES Act funding mm-hmm. to go to broadband deployment activities. And so super exciting. You know, not all of this money is going to go directly to the grant program. There may not be any of it go to the program as we developed it. But about $20 million is going to go to reimburse providers bringing new broadband technologies into unserved and underserved areas. And then the rest is going to be divided up between telehealth and education and library programs. Those things that we've talked about all along that will really help you know, help the state of Missouri and help bring connections to new areas. So it was a super exciting time. You yeah. know, it was right before the 4th of July. I hope it got enough press coverage as it should have, because that was a really big deal. Um, you know, we talked a lot during the COVID shutdown at some of our uh, Zoom calls like mm-hmm. this, where we were talking about, this is really showing how important broadband is. You know, mm-hmm. we talked about it a lot before that, but nothing has been more clear than than that through this whole thing. Uh, so super exciting time. Some and, nearly $50 million in funding. And and one of the things that is interesting and exciting about that is that since this is CARES Act funding that is going towards that, it actually has to be spent relatively soon. Right? Yeah, you're exactly year. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that is a positive as well as it's it's not something that's going to be trickling out over the next two or three years or something. We're going to see about fifty million dollars of investment in Missouri within the next 
four, five months, yeah. six months. Yeah, my understanding is by the end of the year, they've mm-hmm. got to get a lot of this money spent or at least dedicated and out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, so these projects will start to roll here pretty soon. Yeah. Some of that's going to be moving very quickly, especially through some of the, the learning stuff, the education side of things, because they're talking about some kind of some other technologies including hotspots and stuff for education you know if you're not able to actually go to school because of covid in this fall everybody needs to have a connection and and although a hotspot may not be the long-term fix it may be a fix for today to help Mm -hmm. people connect to connect to their education needs Um, and so some of that's going to go to those types of activities as well as some of our hospitals are being very um, forward thinking about Mm -hmm. what they're doing in those realms as far as telemedicine goes and setting up digital ways to connect. It was really interesting to talk to some of those and that are really reaching out to technology to be able to use some of those telehealth services that we've talked about for some time, but to actually talk about people putting boots on the ground is really a great deal. Yeah, and on the telehealth thing, that is something we talk, we talk so much about the recipient, the, the, the patient side mm-hmm. of it, um, but telehealth only works if there's someone delivering it as well. Right. If the doctors and hospitals don't have the infrastructure to um, interact with you, it doesn't matter if you can receive it if they're not sending it. So yeah, that's uh, I think it's work. good to have uh, some of that money dedicated to both sides of that. And yeah, I it was, think, a, it oh, was cool. a super exciting time, you know, that some of that CARES Act funding was able to provide resiliency for the future, right. and that's where some of this is being able to come from. So really excited to see some of that come back and go to one of our major priorities that we've talked about for a long time. This won't fix everything, but it is expected to bring over 10,000 new connections. That's a big number, yeah. you know. That's big. And kind of spiraling on the telehealth, you know, that's something that our resolutions committee really kind of took an interest in this year because of all the things going on with the pandemic. You talked about, you know, the patients being able to access it and the hospitals being able to provide it. But one key link that I think will be really interesting throughout our policy development process is whether or not your health insurance provider is willing to cover those services. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that's not necessarily a guarantee, and that's something we've also learned throughout this pandemic. And with rural health care also being a priority for Farm Bureau, I think it'll be really interesting to see the response. That's something that's on our policy development questionnaire. Um, does your insurance provider currently cover telemedicine? Would you use it if you had access to it? Uh, these are all going to be really key questions as we as we take a more forward-looking approach into how we build resiliency into the future. Yeah, and Medicare and Medicaid have been trying to expand the amount of telehealth services that they will pay for, which often drives what the rest of the industry does. Mm-hmm. And But those have been temporary measures. So mm-hmm. we definitely hope that that will be something that will, will be so successful that they want to expand that permanently and maybe can grow into the insurance and the private market as well. Yeah. And one of the most exciting things, I think, is what you, the second question you ask is, are you, would you be willing to use it? Yeah. And I think the, the answer to that question is leaning more and more towards yes, where it may have been defaulting towards a no. Like, I'm not comfortable with not seeing my doctor, mm-hmm. that type of thing. I think more and more uh, we're seeing people willing to do that. The things we've gone through are probably changing people's mm-hmm. answers to that very question. Yeah, yeah when people's uh, choice became to not see a doctor mm-hmm. or see one this way, they decided I'd rather at least see my doctor. I think so too. Um, Necessity drives innovation. Exactly. So. It kind of shoved us forward five or 10 years in the technological realm. As a lot of people have been saying uh, with you know the work at home kind of stuff and the school at home stuff, this may have been coming, but now it had no choice but to be here. Yeah. Um, so that sometimes does drive the changes. Uh, what about on the federal side? We've seen quite a bit of uh, announcements and innovation on that, too. Right. So BJ mentioned the CARES Act, which was passed, it seems like, years ago, although yeah. it was really only a couple <laughs> months ago. Uh, the CARES Act, which many people know is kind of the big stimulus bill or the first large stimulus bill, really large one, um, 
that dealt with the pandemic. Um, a lot of funds being given to states and some to counties and communities to facilitate broadband distance learning, telemedicine, that sort of thing. Uh, but kind of all eyes right now are on what happens in the next couple of weeks in the United States Senate and House of Representatives. Uh, Political leadership has indicated they would like to do one more stimulus bill to address the impacts of COVID-19. There have been very few details released up until this point, so I can't comment really on any specifics, but we have been told by multiple sources that broadband is going to be a very high priority Mm -hmm. for this uh, final stimulus bill, whether you call that phase two or CARES 2.0 or phase four, or I don't even know what number we're on at this point, but we've given up on numbering. numbering, So, um, but it'll be the final stimulus bill. Certainly a lot of things to to work out with that and and would be happy to go into any of them. But broadband is something that we anticipate will receive some pretty high priority. Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate, has said that this is a high priority for him. Uh, And so we fully anticipate that there will be robust broadband provisions in the next stimulus bill, which should be... They say they want to do it by the 1st of August, so we'll see. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, (laughs) September, if we're lucky. But um, And I think that this is one of the issues that they're... The, the Republicans and Democrats are miles, light years apart on where their positions are today yeah. or whatever this final stimulus mm-hmm. bill will look like. But I think broadband is one of the only things that both sides actually want and yeah. can agree on. So it might end up being some of the grease between the wheels mm-hmm. to get something pushed forward is to put more um, resources into that. Right. That's what I'm crossing my fingers and hoping for, I guess, yeah. is that um, it ends up being one of the things that helps move it towards a resolution. There are some minor disagreements on on process, mm-hmm. right, between Republicans and Democrats on broadband. But by and large, everybody agrees that this is a need that's really been um, brought to light. Although we knew it was a problem before, uh, it's certainly been a much bigger problem than I think anybody yeah. ever wanted to imagine because of the pandemic. Um, and there seems to be commitment on both sides of the aisle that we are going to have to address broadband. Um, unfortunately, you know, for those of us who have been working on it for several years, we kind of wish they would have paid more attention to it. Um, <laughs> it but it but it, I guess it's good that they're paying attention yeah. to it now. So we're certainly grateful for all the leadership that has gone on with the broadband space. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, on to another issue that has also been affected dramatically by COVID, and we don't know what the long-term impacts are going to be, but is uh, the the meat processing Mm -hmm. industry. And um, we saw relatively early in the process, maybe March and April, April and May, I guess, is when the pandemic really started hitting meat processing facilities Mm -hmm. and then uh, that having downstream effects on availability of meat in the supermarket and things like that. there is a lot of discussion now about what do we do to improve that resiliency of that uh, supply chain for the future? And are there legislative things we can do? Are there regulatory mm-hmm. things and investigations that need to be done? And uh, what you know, what's going to happen? What, what do you think is coming from this? So on the federal level, there's a couple of different things. So I, one thing is I did read a report this week that it does seem like uh, we are past the worst of the meat processing woes that, that plagued us several months or several weeks ago. Um, things are kind of capacity starting to normalize. We're kind of getting back to uh, what many of us day-to-day who deal with this would consider to be normal capacity. So that's certainly good news, uh, but that doesn't erase what happened in the COVID-19 right. um, pandemic and at the height of it. You know, the biggest thing we're monitoring right now is USDA, the Department of Justice, and I believe the Federal Trade Commission are in the process of investigating consolidation in the meat, the meatpacking industry, beef, pork. Um, the focus generally has been beef, uh, but there's certainly concentration issues in both pork and poultry as well that I think those issues will continue 
continue to come to light. Um, we actually did see a couple of weeks ago that the Department of Justice did subpoena the big four beef packing companies. Um, over four companies control over 80% of the meat packing industry for beef in the United States, um, and that number is very high for pork and poultry as well. Uh, so we're staying in very close touch with our congressional delegation, with USDA, frankly, with anybody who will listen about getting the results of that investigation. Uh, we certainly saw, and I know we've talked about this on a previous episode, but you know, about a year ago, there was a really big packing plant fire in southeast Kansas, and that may, that had huge implications on the overall market for beef. And we knew that that was a problem. We knew it. They opened an investigation, and then we didn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. We waited. We waited. We waited. We waited. Nothing ever came out. Unfortunately, like with broadband, it's taken a major disruption to get anybody to really pay attention to this. And this is something our members have been concerned about for years. I mean, we have a whole section in our policy book on mergers, acquisitions, and consolidation. I could tell you what section it's in. So um, we just, we know this is a problem, but I also think something that from a federal level we've looking at, there's been a lot of proposals thrown around, a lot of things discussed, some good ideas, some maybe not so good ideas. You know, my my thought process and I think a thought process of a lot of people in the agriculture industry is we've got to get our arms around this problem and figure out what actions can be taken from an administrative level, what actions might require legislative approval, what are the different steps that are going to address the problems that we've seen. Because it's taken a long time to get to where we are and it's very likely going to take more time than we would like to get things to where we want them to be. And I think you're right. I think that the biggest question really that they need to answer first is, what is the problem? Um, I don't think we can all agree on what the problem is. Uh, There are so many different theories about what is causing the price swings in the beef and uh, pork markets, especially. And, you know, there will be people on one side, people on the other side saying, oh, this is a market thing, and or no, this is collusion and price fixing. And I think that those investigations that DOJ and FTC have talked about doing could be very valuable in defining what really is going on in the mm-hmm. first place and getting some of those behind the scenes documents maybe. And once we know really what we're talking about, then we can craft a solution more easily. But some of the solutions that are being thrown out there, I think maybe getting the cart before the horse, because if you aren't really sure what's going on, it's hard to solve it. So there are a get couple, more information soon. There are a couple, and one particular legislative proposal that I've been hearing a lot about that I think really does hold some promise, particularly for our smaller meat processing facilities. You know, that's something, and I'm sure BJ will talk about this as well, but, you know, we have um, member, our members have advocated for a long time to bring more processing to the state of Missouri. Um, there's actually a bill that's been introduced by Representative Dusty Johnson that would allow um, smaller processors who are state inspected, so they may not be federally inspected by USDA, but if they have a state Department of Agriculture that inspects their meat, then they would be able to sell that across state lines via e-commerce. That's not something that you're normally allowed to do under the Mm -hmm. law and that's something we've had policy in our policy book for a very long time advocating that state inspected facilities if they meet all of the requirements that they are required to to meet then then they should be able to sell their product just like everybody else and Mm -hmm. and this legislation would do just that i i don't want to speak too soon but i'm very hopeful that that will be included in the stimulus bill Mm -hmm. Well, and I think one of the things you were talking about, we don't know the answers to the investigations and stuff, but for most producers, having a limited number of buyers, Mm -hmm. 
is 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 seen as squeezing down the market. Right. And and the the, the fixes for that are not easy. Yeah. But but to most producers, they see that as a major problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like I said, like you said, it took us a long time to get here. But also the laws that are governing these businesses are very old, and, yep. and they probably don't reflect the the markets that we live in as today. And especially for Missouri producers who are largely cow calf, largely aren't feeding you know fat cattle. Um, having a, a limited number of buyers um, in the end, and when we see a disruption, that usually is seen as one of the major problems we're right. seeing. So right. I do think um, some of the problems seem pretty evident, although there's always we need to look at that, but um, hard to find what the right answer for that is and how you fix that, although there's there's a lot of people thinking about ideas, and, and hopefully we're able to find some of those. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on that note, that's was the topic of our weekly commentary that went out this morning uh, was that there are too many eggs in too few baskets right now. And if you have only one plant in a 80-mile radius and it goes down, you got nowhere to send your stuff to, mm-hmm. uh, your animals to. And so um, there's a lot of problems just inherent in that and having too few players in the market. And we, as I mentioned in that article, uh, like you said, the laws dealing with it were written in the early 1900s. Right. You know, this is Upton Sinclair, the jungle back in Chicago, old meatpacking days. That that's when this stuff was written. But we're in 2020 now, and right. we need a different regime, a different set of regulations um, that reflects current market realities. So, right. definitely need to find some solutions. It's just I don't want to get too clo- too far ahead in writing those until we know exactly what we're up against. So, yep, I agree. At the state level, um, the whole COVID pandemic brought brought a lot of new attention to wanting to bring new processors to the state. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Kehoe put together a group where they started talking about options. We actually had some leaders from the state that were involved with the Grocers Association because that's one of the major things. If you're going to bring additional processing, everybody says you've got to have customers for it. Mm-hmm. And that's where your grocers come in. They've got to be saying, hey, we're, we're willing to buy local rather than through these major contracts. Because I mean, it's simpler for them. If you're a nationwide grocer to buy from a nationwide company, um, you kind of have a more of that, you understand that stable flow. Um, but but that this pandemic kind of brought the grocers back to the table of saying, hey, we don't like these disruptions either because they were seeing it from another, you know, they don't like empty shelves either. Right. Um, and so this kind of brought that back to light and, and, and to some good news. So we've actually had, there was some money put into the budget, some CARES Act funding to go to Missouri small and medium-sized processors to hopefully support them into the future and help them be a little bit more resilient. So we're hoping to be able to see some of that flow out and hopefully do some good work with that. And then also a lot of talk about increasing capacity within the state. What Missouri has is a lot of adult cows, you know, and to be able to to be able to process some of those locally would really benefit all producers. So we're excited about that. And actually in the last couple months are seeing some new ones coming online and and about to come online. One in the Kansas City region uh, where you saw somebody coming in and and processing cows and they're actually selling those to a local local market. They're seeing, they're they're filling a need. They actually told me when I was visiting with them that they were not thinking they would be fully in business until mid-June but because of the demand because of COVID, they actually ramped up their timeline and got it going and and they they were going strong early so that was exciting to see and and what they were saying was they've already seen direct impact on those markets for producers. So it's increasing that income for producers as well. And 
And then also, if, if anybody's following along, there's also been some rumor about a new one coming to southwest Missouri, that region. Um, and hopefully, it's it's interesting, that rumor's been going on for about a month or so now, but hopefully we see that see that solidified here pretty soon. Another that we understand is, is looking to, uh, to in, in beef as well. So exciting times in the meat processing world, although there's a lot of conversation going on. And I will say we're not, there isn't a solid, like, this is the direction we want to go. Um, but as we bring more processors on board, uh, all good for those producers to have extra places, extra buyers for the product they're producing. So excited about that. Well, and a lot of people on the other side of that would say that the reason that the industry consolidated in the first place was because it allows for a lower cost product Mm -hmm. and, you know, consolidation of overhead and all of that, and that that's what the market was demanding. But hopefully this can provide the buyer incentive where the market is saying we're willing to pay a little more um, to have locally grown stuff and, and to have a more resilient market right. yeah. And yeah. A, yeah more resilient supply chain and I think there is is more of an appetite for that yeah. um, after the COVID situation where people realize there's a real reason to do that it's not all just um, talk it really matters in real life yeah and I think there may be an opportunity for the state to really support that Missouri product you know there we there's always been a push for locally grown food right. but that doesn't just have to be at the farmer's market and there's nothing wrong with the person who sells at the farmer's market but that could also be done through our major pro- processors yeah. at our grocery stores mm-hmm. and done that way too so I, I think it's a it's a chance for a major win-win. I yeah. think that's something that Missouri already does really well with our wine and grape program. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, you, you're able to buy those products, at least in mid-Missouri, about any retail grocery you go to, they have Missouri wines. Yeah, and they'll have a separate uh, section with a sign above yeah. it that says Missouri wines yeah. sometimes where if you're looking to buy local, you can. Yep. So clearly there's the ability and the mm-hmm. infrastructure in place to set some of that up. Yeah. All right. Well, a separate issue here that we've uh, seen more developments on and discussion in the past few days is on trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, the USMCA went into effect Woo! July 1st. <laughs> Don't sing the song. I won't. I, can't believe <laughs> I we, want to, I can't though. believe we haven't made another video. I oh want to my. sing the song so uh, bad. No, no, you get kicked off the podcast for that. <laughs> but um, I can still sing all the words. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, so can I. Uh, so July 1st, that went into effect fully. And it's a little more snarky than we normally are on the podcast right there. It's <laughs> what the people are paying for for their free podcast. Um, so, yeah, that went into effect on July 1st. But there has been other um, some other uh, free trade negotiations that have mm-hmm. been go- ongoing as well with additional countries. Uh, what are you hearing on the, the trade front? Yeah, so a couple pretty big developments. You mentioned USMCA, but uh, this week, actually, China actually recorded the first ever, excuse me, not first ever, largest ever is the phrase I'm looking for, purchase of U.S. corn. Mm-hmm. So uh, certainly we continue to monitor the phase one deal with China. Obviously, the um, the relationship with China and the U.S. government right now is a bit strained. A prob- little bit. Probably yeah. a little bit more strained than it was in, say, like, December or January. So um, we continue to monitor enforcement of that deal. Um, Hopefully, you know, with that large purchase of corn, we're on the right track. Um, We do think that purchases will probably need to pick up quite a bit in order for China to meet their obligations. Uh, But we are still optimistic that that may happen. I know we're getting ready. I was on a call with um, some folks from American Farm Bureau yesterday, and they indicated that the time is coming for for soybeans to really purchasing to start picking up. So hopefully that does pick up. Yeah, because most of that happens 
later in the yeah. calendar year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then the other thing I wouldn't, wanted to just briefly mention is the U.S. has officially kicked off trade negotiations with Kenya, uh, which is an emerging market that we're really interested in. American Farm Bureau, if anybody who's listening is curious, put out a really interesting analysis on potential trade opportunities and market opportunities in Kenya. Very informative piece by Veronica Nye, who's our, we're very proud to have her as a Missouri girl working at AFBF. Um, but if you go to fb.org slash market intel, you'll be able to see that article. is very informative, very eye-opening. Yeah, really good opportunities there that hopefully we'll be able to see progress um, with the negotiations and get that through soon. I really, nice. as somebody who does not deal very much in African economies and things like that on that continent, um, I was really intrigued by learning so much about the Kenyan mm-hmm. economy. It yeah. was very eye-opening for yeah, me. Definitely so. Fascinating to see some good news for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, on the uh, congressional side of things as well, we have some uh, news this week about the Water Resources Development Act, or mm-hmm. WERDA. Where yeah. are we with that? So a lot of developments on WERDA this week. Congressman Sam Graves, of course, is ranking member of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, which writes the Water Resources Development Act, uh, which is passed every two years. And that legislation is a very large piece of legislation that funds inland waterways projects uh, for two years for the Army Corps of Engineers. A lot of leadership from Congressman Graves working on both Missouri and Mississippi River priorities. Um, So that's something we had worked closely with him on. The bill did pass out of committee yesterday. Uh, So there's still a long way to go. Uh, The Senate passed their bill out of committee, I believe, in early May. Uh, But I'm not sure when floor time is scheduled for both of those. I'm hearing the House may take up WERDA as early as next week um, or the last week of July, but I'm not sure what the Senate's timeline is. That bill does have to be passed by the end of the year um, because otherwise it will expire. Mm -hmm. So um, just something to keep your eye on. We put a little bit of information in our newsletter this week, so keep an eye on your inbox. Yeah, that's a very important bill to Missouri, given the number of rivers and the miles of rivers that we have uh, that are affected by WERDAS. Yes. Um, Last thing we'll go over today is uh, the governor just made an announcement um, within the past day about calling a special session Uh, bringing the legislature back here to Jeff City. So, B.J., what are we going to see with that? Yes, so the governor announced yesterday, um, made the official announcement, uh, that he was calling the legislature back in beginning on July 27th. Uh, Now, what does that actually mean? Typically, uh, with a special session, if there's a package that's kind of worked out, they're kind of here one day, gone for a couple, back in and out. So I don't expect the bill to pass, obviously not July 27th, um, but I think it'll go for a week or two probably on this issue. But a special session relating to violent crime. Um, you, When we adjourned session back in May, there was rumors of multiple special sessions. But as we've kind of gone along, I kind of thought, well, special session, if we're going to have one, will probably coincide with the veto session in mid-September. But with what we've seen in our major cities and some of the disruptions, we've seen some violence against police. We've seen a lot of that kind of thing going on and just ran just actual violence, not related to any of the uh, of the protest or anything, but just violence in some of the cities, especially around the Fourth of July time. Um, the governor said uh, we're going to have a special session the end of the month uh, relating to violence in this in, in major in our urban areas. And it's actually going to be focused on about six major areas, including 
Um, police safety and empl- and residency requirements. In the city of St. Louis, in order to be a, a police officer in St. Louis, you actually have to live within that jurisdiction. And, and that's been seen as a major problem for, for the city for some time, where people want to come and go, they want to choose where they want to live. Um, and so there's going to be looks to fix that, as well as several provisions looking at witness protection. You know, Governor Parson actually, to his credit, uh, beginning of the year, actually, I think it was close to maybe even last year, started meeting with the mayors of the major cities across the state. He was meeting with Columbia and Springfield, St. Louis, Kansas City, obviously, and talking about violence in your city and what can be done to help address some of these situations. And one of the major things they talked about was the need to have witnesses come forward when things do happen. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that that witness protection is one of those major things. And so they're looking at a fund to protect witnesses and until they until they testify, and then some to, to, to work afterwards, and then also looking at some weapons um, laws, mainly getting weapons into the hands of children. You know, they're not old enough to own a weapon, and you've illegally transferred, you, you know, you've illegally shared a weapon with the child, and, and bringing some additional, um, additional penalties for things like that, and then also some additional penalties for, um, or per- possible additional penalties for youth using a firearm. Arm. You know, if you're hmm. under 18, you're not supposed to have certain weapons, and yet there's a, you know, a crime committed by a youth with a firearm, um, bringing some additional penalties for that as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it's pretty narrowly uh, scripted as, as I see it. I know there's a lot of other issues that people would like to see addressed in special session, some related to the police, some related to liability issues. You know, there's other issues hanging out there that, that people would like to see. Internet sales tax is one that's been rumored yep. with the impact we've seen on the economy. Can we have a special session to get that issue fixed? The governor in his press conference yesterday yesterday said this is what this special session will refer to, and he wants to get this issue behind him. You know, it wasn't all that long ago he was sitting bedside beside a police officer who had been shot, and I think that, you know, that's helping to spur this along. It's it's a little bit interesting timing because we're calling a special session the week before the primary election, which will be held August 4th, Um, and so I think um, I think you see the urgency there to get this one done, get it behind us. I do think there's still the chance to have additional special sessions mm-hmm. um, as we look towards the fall and possibly uh, towards that September veto session timeline. But it was kind of a surprise. Everybody kind of knew there may be, but I think this topic probably wasn't what people thought. But then as we've seen the summer kind of heat up and the issues we've seen go on, um, I think he thought, well, let's get some of this stuff dealt with. To be honest, um, the governor would have liked to seen a lot of this addressed during session. Um, he was talking about these things during right. his state yeah. of the state address and other things. Um, and, and I think he was probably let down that the legislature couldn't mm-hmm. find yeah. a package that could work. But with the realities of session being shortened, um, sometimes you've got to find negotiations. Sometimes a special session is a great opportunity to bring people into a room to focus on one it's issue or a small set of issues and get that thing done. Right. Well, uh, so that's a week and a half away. Yeah. We're getting really close to that happening. So it'll be very interesting to see what is able to be put together by the legislature and come out of there. It will be because I'm sure there's going to be several legislators that come to the Capitol that week or, or within that you know time frame that say, hey, I want to talk about this issue. I want to talk right. about that issue. Some of that will be allowed to happen, but most of that will be 
called out of line of the call of the session and, and they'll stay narrowly focused on on what's going on here and yeah. bj mentioned the primary election we haven't even talked about the election we have to save that for another episode because yes, there's there's a lot to unpack there too there sure is well so i appreciate you guys joining us uh, before we go you did bring up the idea of elections and um just was thinking of of we started having a closing question during mm-hmm. our COVID Hashtag time. quarantine question. Yes. And we'll have to so call it something a, else now. I had a thought I was wanting to know. Um, unfortunately, we saw the rise and fall of the Kanye West presidential bid oh, since our last— What a letdown. Yeah. 11 days, which I heard was defined as exactly one Scaramucci. Um, <laughs> But that's the only amount of time he was for, in the race for pure entertainment value. Um, yeah, well, so a real letdown for American society. So unfortunately, he will not be our next president. But once Donald Trump is out of office, who is the uh, entertainer who you would support to make uh, to uh, make a run to be the next president? So of the a States? celebrity. Does it have to be a singer, a or can it be anybody? Hey, Ronald Reagan was a celebrity. Donald okay, Trump was a celebrity a, yeah. in their own ways. That's so, uh, what do you think, Spencer? Oh, gosh. Is this... Okay, I have a question. I have a Mm -hmm. follow-up question. Mm -hmm. Is this somebody who you think seriously would do a good job, or is it purely as the entertainment factor? (laughs) Okay, because this is a hard question. You choose your president for your reasons. Okay. (laughs) Um, I think my president is George Strait. Oh, my gosh, you stole mine! Dang. Mine's President George Strait. BJ, you have to think of something else. <laughs> That's so not fair. That's and it's exactly for a good reason, say. not for any say, entertainment reason. I was going to say he'd do a good job. I think he's a nice person. Oh, well, I was going nice. to say he's a Texan. Which isn't he'd the only reason on somebody <laughs> should be president. Chuck but, Norris, maybe. <laughs> but I think he seems like a generally nice guy who I would trust. So, well, good, yeah, good. No, so okay. it's George Strait. Okay, BJ. You absolutely. I'm like, no joke. I'm sitting back here saying. It's George Strait. You've got to pick somebody else. Oh. Can't use George Jones. He's dead. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so who is that it? was a little insensitive. Well, I know that's think? one of BJ's big, you know, one of his favorites. Heroes. Yeah. Eric, while well, BJ's thinking, yeah, why who would you yours, tell us yours Well, I was thinking um, somebody who's a straight talker and really just entertaining and has a wonderful voice is Mike Rowe. Oh, Mike oh. Rowe would be so good. I would totally go for Mike yeah. Rowe. I well think played. that would be a, a good president. Mike George. To bring us together. 2024. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think, BJ? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, I... I'm drawing complete blank here. Shania Twain. Oh right. yes. Oh, there she's not American. She's not American. Oh, she's, she's Canadian. Oh well. Fun dang. fact. Yeah. That if you're a true Shania fan, you'd know that. And you are. Yeah. Since you dressed as her. She was born Halloween. in Canada. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Yes. So you don't support America. Good to know. <laughs> well, thank you guys <laughs> for joining too us. Much. We will look cut, forward to you're getting. Gonna have back. to cut that part. <laughs> <laughs> we'll look forward to getting back together and talking about more electoral politics soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you.